0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your Nuclear Barbarian, Emmett Penny, and today is another ONG day. We're going to be talking about oil and gas. Specifically, we'll be talking about the Permian Basin with Andrew De La Rosa. What's up, Andrew? What's
1: going on, man? Uh, glad to be here. Thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you guys are just cranking it out down there. So I found you on Twitter because. um Mark Ruffalo was being a tool, complaining about oil and gas. Um, And I had pointed out that he had helped shut down the Indian Point nuclear power plant, which of course was replaced with gas. So I was like, you're kind of not serious with what you're saying. And then a friend of mine in the pro-nuclear movement sent me your response, which was you giving the camera a finger standing on a rig, and all it said was much love from the Permian. And she was like, I know you'll love this. <laughs> I was like, that's my guy right there. I don't know who he is, but I got to figure out how to talk to him. And sure enough, uh, here you are. So um, let's just start with the basics, man. What is up in the Permian? How did you end up there? How did you end up in ONG? And what do you do in ONG? All
1: right. So I'm actually born and raised in Midland, Texas, which is, you know, right smack in the middle of the Permian Basin. Uh, mm mm-hmm. I've been uh, I've been in the oil and gas industry industry for 12 almost 13 years and I do a uh, wireline which is uh, most notably known for perforating which that is we send um explosives in the form of like pipes and inside those pipes you have these things called jet perforating charges so we send them on this uh, big conductive cable called wireline thousands of feet into the earth like on vertical wells like upwards of 10,000 15,000 feet which were that, that was like the old school day before the horizontal boom and we'll set them to a certain depth to where there's um what's it called there's formation that was, that's actually like produced oil and gas we'll set them off so these charges they shoot out the explosive shoot out they, they penetrate the casing penetrate cement and they go into the uh to the earth so it opens up it, it connects your formation to your to your weld bore and once we do that we retrieve the tools out and then that frack goes in and they start pumping all their stuff and that's when they start doing all the fracking stuff, that's you need wire lines to be able to frack wells. I mean, for the most part you do, you can, you can frack without wire line, but wire line just makes a hell of a lot faster. Um, there's, there's a lot of other things you can do with it, but that's what it's uh, mainly known for.
0: Okay, cool. So basically like these, these charges basically break everything up to make it easier to frack is what my layman's understanding of this is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, man.
0: Oh, awesome. Cool. Did you know we tried doing that with nuclear weapons? <laughs>
1: So I've I I seen some some videos way back in the day. Um, saw one. I forgot where exactly that. I think it was somewhere in like Eastern Europe or something like that. It was a, a gas well they couldn't get out, so they drilled like a, a side well right next to it, and they sent off a nuke. And that nuke just like pretty much like just choked the main gap line, and they were able. That's how they're able to get it shut off. That's that's yeah. one of them seen like that.
0: Yeah. So we tried basically like. Under Project Plowshares, um, like in the 60s, we were basically like, what if we went out to New Mexico and basically tried to like frack with nukes before like that was even like a thing? And of course, it just released tons of tritiated gas and they had no idea what to do with it or how to treat it or anything like that. It was wild. But I think it's basically the same ideas that they wanted to break up the formation so they could get all the gas trapped in between there out. It didn't work or it kind of worked, but it ended up being a big boondoggle. Anyway, that's a nice nuclear O&G connection right there. Um, so have you always been a wireline guy or did you do other things before that?
1: That's this is all I've done, dude. Um, I happened to, I stumbled on the job, like kind of accidentally. It was uh, recommended to me, but I had no clue that this is what it'd be. Uh, before this, I worked at a small mom and pop construction company. And I was there for about two and a half years. And I, I called one of my buddies who I used to work with. I used to work with over there and I told him, I was like, man, I'm, you know, I want to get into something else. And so this is said like 12, 13 years ago. And he asked me, he's like, man, you ever heard of wireline?" I was like, no, I didn't know anything about the wall. So that was as warm as could be. I thought like a drilling rig goes onto the land, drills a hole and oil comes out. I didn't understand anything with the sides behind it, all the different uh, mm-hmm. services that you have to uh, just to be able even to even extract oil and gas. And I told him, I was like, man, I was like, Not I heard of it. And he told me a place to apply went applied. And, um, Funny is like, he told me he's like oh it's easy all you to do is drive a truck that's like like the smallest thing that we do is drive trucks which I, don't, I, don't much- <laughs> I was about yeah. to say
0: that's uh, it's like <laughs> that seems like but yeah the smallest part of what you do
1: it's just to transport our equipment from location to location so I went and um, found a shop said wireline um, walked in talked to the manager and asked me if I had experience I was like no but you know I'm willing to learn you know thankfully I had my CDL that's what really got me the job. Mm asked me he's like man you got your cdl i was like i was like uh, yeah i do he's like well shit man you know you gotta the battle one so started and man, my first day i was thinking to myself i was like dude what the heck did i get myself into <laughs> <laughs> so right, like i like said here i am you know 12 almost 13 years later
0: yeah so give us a give us a little picture because i think like you know i've talked with people from you know i've had uh colin mcclelland on i've had um uh mark hinneman from franklin mountain energy on here um and we've talked a little bit about what goes on out at a rig but like you said that like wireline is just one service what the hell else goes on out there because i think like most people my understanding of this before i started covering energy every day was just what you described before you got into wireline i was like well they just put the thing out there and ram it in and i've been to midland and that's still kind of what i thought
1: yeah, so, I mean, shoot, dude, just to to even get a well online, well, obviously, you know, you got to drill a hole, but you, before that, you have guys that are going in and they're surveying the land and all that, and uh, you'll have uh, other operations that'll come. They'll start sputting the well, get it all ready. Then you'll actually have the drilling uh, rig come on, and they'll start drilling to certain depths and everything. I guess, you know, now, don't quote me on this. I'm not super uh, familiar with the drilling operations. There's only so much I actually know. Sure. They'll start, um, you know, get some maybe core sampling and all that and um there's actually uh, another part of wireline will go in and they'll get the the properties of the formation through uh, it's called open hole which what open hole is is mean they'll go in where there's they'll they'll send their tool down hole there's no casing at all so it's just just bare earth just a hole in the earth with the drilling rig they'll they'll run that and then um I guess once they get to a certain depth um they'll they'll put in their casings like you have three sets of casings Whenever you're drilling a rig, you have your surface casing, which that's going to be your biggest hole. Then you have your intermediate or your surface. Before I get ahead of myself, your surface is going to start just literally right there, surface. It's going to go down maybe a couple hundred feet, maybe a, a few thousand feet. And that right there is all of those, those sets of casings to protect the wire table still. You set the casing, they'll seam into place and they'll come in and they'll do the intermediate casing. And that's going to go from surface to, you know. Uh, several more thousand feet below surface. And then finally the last set of pipes they're going to put in is going to be your production casing, which is your smallest one. That's where I, all your hydrocarbons are actually going to be flowing through. So that will be from surface all the way down to TD, whether it's a vertical from zero to like, I don't know, 10, 15,000 feet, or it could be a horizontal well to where it goes from the surface all the way down. Then slowly that well will start to to deviate and it'll go lateral for maybe two, three miles. I mean, people are making these, uh, lateral wells, horizontal wells, I mean, they're long now, man. Um, the longest one I've ever been on is like 25,000 feet, but that's not, that's not true vertical depth. So like, it'll be like maybe like zero to 10,000, then it'll slowly start to kick off and it'll go lateral for a couple more miles. Like true vertical depth is probably like, I don't know, maybe like 10, 11,000 feet, depending on which formation they're actually trying to go into. So you'll have that. That'll be your, your drilling operations, which that's, this is all part of your completion work. So once they have that, they'll go in, and they'll start to frack the well. They'll, it'll be like they'll be taking. Parents will be wireline will go in. They'll they'll perforate, pull the tools out, then frack will go in. They'll frack it, and this will be just repeated over and over and over throughout the whole entire lateral of the well. It can be, um, I don't know, like the smallest frack I've ever been on for a horizontal is like six stages, which that's that's nothing, and I've been on some where on a single well, it's like sixty something stages, where that's that's a lot. You're there for depending on how good the frat crew is, how the pump times and everything, how good the wireline is. It could be days or it could be weeks, but most times now, especially with horizontal wells, it's not just a single well. Like it's rare to see a single well now. Like you'll, you'll have a drill rig. They'll be on a on a pad and they'll, they'll just pop multiple holes with multiple wells. Like the most I've ever been on at once is eight wells on one pad. And that could take like, it's just, like I said, it varies by how many stages are in the well, what are the pump times and, are we going to have any type of downtime like for maintenance or somebody messes up it could take weeks or it could take a, a few months so once they have all that completed they'll get out of the way wireline line and frac, uh, and um though they'll, they'll bring in either cool tubing or a uh, workover rig which a workover rig looks like a drilling rig it's just small mm-hmm. so those right there is to um to drill out the plugs. see when you um when wireline goes in on the bottom of their tool string, they have something called a, a plug, which is basically like to put it in the most simplest terms. It's cork. Okay. Like it's, it just, it stops up that area. It isolates. So they'll set this plug and it isolates the previous zone behind it that you already perforated. So you, boom, you set a plug and you come up and you start shooting guns and they will go and they'll frack. So on the next stage, they'll go in and they'll set a plug above that area. So they're not fracking more than one zone at once. So they will just like they'll go in the the workover rig or cool tubing. Which cool tubing is it's like a giant, it's it's big machinery as mm-hmm. hollow pipe, like a reel, and it goes in and it's 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 pumped, it's it's mechanically pushed down, and it goes into just like a like the pull unit, yeah, into the it's just pipe that's being pushed down with a uh, drill bit on the bottom, and it's slowly drilling out all those plugs to each one, and it's circulating fluids, so everything's just being pushed back up hole, and then you'll have. Other guys up top like flow black or flow flow back. I'm sorry, which they're you know they're getting all the returns and everything and telling how much rate they're getting. So we'll get all that cleaned up, the well were cleaned up, and then from there they can start you know going in and producing the well, putting it online and all that stuff. Depending on how much bottom hole pressure is like, does it need a pump jack? This and that. Mm. There's, there's a lot of stuff, and even after that, you still got to go in. You have like um what are they called? Uh, dang it, dude, the, the words have slipped my mind. Uh, right. Um, uh, pump can't remember the freaking names right now because i just went stupid but um you can always go back to the wells they might like like if it's maybe it's producing too much water or it's not you know it's not producing a, enough oil and all that They'll go they'll put a workover rig on it and they'll start to restimulate the well they'll run packers in the hole stuff like that which packers is another isolation tool i mean it's well they'll, they'll do what they can to make sure that that well is going to keep producing and if for some reason it's like oh well you know we've done what we could with this well they'll go back in and they'll plug and abandon the well and that's just more and more oil field services that you got to run for the whole entire lifespan of that well and this well could be hopping for decades
0: man dude that is complex that's like no wonder so i remember the first time i've talked about this on the podcast a bunch of times whenever i talk to an ong guy i talk about my daddy used to live in alpine yeah so i went out to see him and we landed in midland of course you know and I remember my wife and I walking into the airport and all I'm seeing is like, you know, drill site services, billboards, like everywhere. Like that's all in the advertising It There's no like, check out this cool drink or whatever. It's just like, you know, do you need this like weird pipe fixture? We sell that. And I was like, yeah. this rules. I was like, this is awesome.
1: Out so much stuff too. Like I'm only like, talking about so many like oil field services that actually come in to make this all possible i mean you still have people behind the scenes like on the finance side that are mm-hmm. all this stuff the engineers that are like okay we're gonna drill here this is why we're gonna drill. we're gonna produce this song this is how many stages we're gonna put and then like even on a frack too like you have like the different services you got water transfer you got wireline. You got plug hands you got uh the the frack people you got people that control the the well or the the valves the wellhead valves the frack stand. Flowback. You got company, man. I mean, even some of the most smallest things, like you know, uh, water haulers, sand haulers, guys that come and just pick up the porta and all that shit. There's just so many different services that go on just to make sure that this is gonna be this well, gonna this pad, this operation is gonna go according to plan. I mean, these are multi million dollar operations, dude. It's 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 crazy. Yeah,
0: yeah, man. And it's all super valuable capital, so people don't want to mess anything up. So what I'm hearing is that like. Let me say if I could, see if I can sort of like restate a little bit of the process. So like, um, is wireline after the site is picked, and it's like okay, we're going to, frac here. Like, in what order do you show up? Are you one of the first things that happen? Are you middle? Like, how does it go in the process?
1: It depends, dude. Because like like I said, with um when the drilling rigs there. They can have wireline come in to log the well and that right there, if, if there's no casing in the hole, that's going to be your open hole wire line, which open hole isn't as common as what it used to be. That was more of like on the vertical days, you, like mm-hmm. with the vertical fracks, you had to be precise, like, because you only have like so many feet of zone to where like you can actually work with versus a horizontal, you're in the pay zone the whole entire time. So you have, you have that, they can come like right at the beginning when they're still uh, drilling the well, or once they drill the well. So they just have a, they just have the well right there and it's ready to be, uh, logged with casehole wire line. So it just, it varies on when it's actually going to come in. So it could be like right at the beginning, right before they start fracking, or obviously they're going to be there while they're fracking or even afterwards when the well is already complete, Hey, we need wireline to come in and I don't know, set a packer so that we can uh, tie into the packer and start pumping some, uh, you know, acid down hole to be able to re-stimulate these perfs. So it, the wireline can come in in every single part of the well's life, whether it's the completion or the production stage.
0: Damn. Okay, cool. That's good to know. So it's sort of like, all right, we're going to we're going to pick the spot. We need to sort of, first of all, clear the area. We need to make sure that it's like, this thing is ready to be fracked at all. We need to like break this stuff up. That's where wireline comes in. But you also need to clean a bunch of stuff out of it so that you're actually getting the hydrocarbons that you want and not a whole bunch of other stuff. And so that's where the guys come in that you were talking about who like... Process the water out, or like do all of these other things that people don't even think of before you can even start extracting what you need out of the well.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Like with um, like I said, wireline is mainly known for perforating. That's that's what's hot. That's what's popular. That's where like when people come to the Permian, uh, you know, hey, I want to do wireline. What they're thinking in their head is, I want to go work at a pump down company where I want to, you know, just shoot guns. That's all. That's what I'm going to get paid to do, shoot guns. But you can run so many different services, dude. Like I said, you can run uh, logging tools. You can run mechanical tools. I mean, it's not just perforating. I mean, there's so much stuff. To, it's been around for like a little thing, like right at a hundred years, a little bit over a hundred years. Uh, okay. Plumber Day Brothers started it. You know, some of the the first wells that were ever wirelined were over there in France. You know, I can't remember what the name of the field is. And all they were doing was they were running simple uh, gamma ray logs, which uh, all wells, they admit their own gamma ray. And that's just the natural occurring, you know, decay of the rock over the millions of years and all that stuff like that. Okay, so cool. And, you know, it, it's been advanced through technology, obviously.
0: Were Okay. That's really helpful. That's certainly, I love that because that's sort of like a, a fracking for dummies. I feel like I have like a set an idea of how the process works. Um, so like you've been in this for like 12 years now. What changes have you seen in the industry over the course of that time? Because a lot's happened in that just over a decade.
1: It's crazy how much, like, so my, my senior in the field is short compared to a lot of these older guys like these <laughs> that have been there 20 30 all the years and i can only imagine how much has changed for them because even in the short amount of time like so i started 2011 and whenever i started doing it i was doing a lot of perforating which i mean i still do that now back then it was mainly like like 98 percent was vertical wells and then i remember out of nowhere my um uh, my supervisor during the time when i was a hand was like we're going down to South Texas. We're, I was like, I'm going to show you the real whole field. I, like, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, we're going to do a pump down. I was like, what the you know, what the hell is a pump down? And, you know, they explained it to me, the horizontal well and all that. And then just like, probably like, shoot, 2013, 2014, the horizontal boom just kicked off here in West Texas. Like, everybody was just drilling horizontal wells. Everyone was doing pump down work. So the tools, like, let's say, I, I would say 2014, 2015, and 16, um, there's this huge advancement in our uh, firing our perforating systems which they're they're called addressable switches. So you have these new type of guns now to where everything is integrated to like have like these switches to able to like to set the guns off like they have their own IP signature and all this stuff and they're able to communicate with the guns the whole entire time going down hole like before that like it wasn't it wasn't like that you had to we had to wire all the guns up you had to do it Flawlessly. If not, like if one gun didn't shoot, then nothing was going to shoot, and that was called a misrun. So now you have like this walk of shame where you're bringing the tools out. Everyone's pissed off at you. Like you're holding up (laughs) operations. Like like I said, multi-million dollar wells and all this stuff. You have to be able to figure it out. What happened? It could be something like as stupid as like just one little wire got pinched, or you forgot to connect one wire, or when you're putting everything in, whenever you. You put the little, uh, like, a plug called a port plug to isolate it from fluids, get it into the into the tool and flood it and out. They could forgot an O-ring, so now that thing floods. So, like, with these, I, with these addressable guns, these addressable switches, you go down, hole, hole, you set a like, go down and try to shoot a gun. Okay, the gun won't shoot. Okay, well, crap. Well, now we have the option through software and these switches to be able to bypass that gun and shoot whatever gun we want. And right. even, like, even now, like, the gun systems, they are dude my youngest kid is gonna be 10 in october and it's got like it's gotten so dummy proof and like trying to eliminate human error that i can teach my kids how to put these guns together they're pretty much i call them lego guns they're and that's what they're they're aiming for they're plug and play but mm-hmm. especially with like the uh pump downs these are all zipper wells it's multiple multiple uh wells what they call them zipper fracks so this this operations are moving fast fast like you pick up one gun go in the hole go in the hole shoot it come out you lay it down second you lay it down, you connect to another gun just boom you're just going well to well to well to well so that way you're eliminating human error like oh you know someone could have forgot something another thing another huge advantage too now is this cable so wireline is a steel cable and back in the day which they still run this cable we call it conventional cable now at this point you, uh, you have to run this uh, type of pressure control called a grease head up top so you have this wire line that's going through this grease head and you have multiple hoses that are connected to it and to be able to control wellbore fluid from spraying all over the place, you have to pump, like, actual grease. That grease is controlling it. It's keeping the the uh, the wireline cool because you have metal-on-metal metal friction, stuff like mm. that. Just a bunch of hoses. That was a that was a big pain in the butt, having to—I mean, you have hoses that are 100, like, I don't know, like 150 feet long. And, I mean, that stuff does get heavy. <laughs> and having to um, put it all back up on your equipment or if you don't— uh, if you don't have a good pressure control hand, you're flinging grease all over the location. It's getting all over. Company man's vehicles are getting pissed off. Brax getting pissed off because you got grease going all over their equipment. So now we have the introduction of greaseless cable, which they started really, t- I think the first time I ever heard about that was 2015. And I think it was an- another Slumberjay uh, patent, if I'm not mistaken. And so most companies now that are in the uh, pump down operations, they run this greaseless cable. So it's kind of, it's pretty much the same thing. It's steel line, but on the outside, you have this polymer jacket so now you don't have to run all this grease and everything. It's, it's supposed to, it's so far, I like it. I barely started running it. Um, it increases your, your pump down times, your speeds. You can pull out a lot faster and all this stuff. I mean, like I said, eliminating all these hoses and everything. Like it's pretty awesome, dude. And another, two, another real big advancement too is um, these things called rig So back in the day, whenever you, we would get our uh, lubricator, which lubricator is pressure control. It's just a big pipe you put on top of the well heads to be able to hoist all our tools you actually have to have a man physically go up there in a man lift and screw it on by hand mm. we have these basically these machines where it just sits on top of it you have a guy operating another panel and he just presses a couple of buttons here and there locks into the place so now you don't have to have a guy that's in the red zone the whole entire time it, those those are really huge for fracking because while you're while you're wirelining and you're ready to get off the well, there's always going to be another well that's being fracked. So that well is being fracked. You have thousands and thousands of pounds of pressure. So now you don't have to risk anybody going into that red zone. And, you know, God forbid something happens, iron parts, pressure mm-hmm. goes up, someone, you know, unfortunately loses their life and all that. It's just, dude, it's so freaking crazy. And honestly, I say this all the time, and this isn't to, uh, like, knock anybody down that's just getting into the industry. Because, I mean, we need all the people that we can get. This is just the advancement of technology. If you start Wireline in this day and age, especially at a, at a pump down company, your skill set, your knowledge is no, not even close to the to the guy that started it during the vertical days. Those guys, like they know what what real Wireline is, how to troubleshoot, how to fix problems here and there instead of, you know, just putting together Lego guns and stuff like that. And a lot of the stuff, too, is like 100% disposable. Like back in the day when I was doing it, and you, you mentioned Colin McLaylan, we worked together. We did Wireline together. We were on the same mm-hmm. crew. In would have to the guns would get out, we have to clean up all this stuff just to be able to reuse it again. It's that's not the case anymore. Like these guns come out, they're they're you just get them, you throw them in a damn bin, and that's it. And you just put a new one, like it's they're pretty pampered now these days, man. Especially wireline hands,
0: uh, man. That is that is a ton of advancement in a short amount of time, is what and I'm hearing.
1: There's stuff's coming out all the freaking time, like a lot of new things that I'm seeing here. And there, I'm like, gosh dang, dude, it's like before I know it, like. I'm not going to even have a job. It's going to be freaking AI or some machine just running all the crap.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, but it also sounds like that makes it an exciting industry to be in because, you know, if you get that sort of like velocity going where it's like, we're solving shit, like we're taking this on, that's got to be exhilarating.
1: Yeah. They're doing what they can to uh, eliminate human error and everything just to be able to save costs. Cause even like, dude, one one misrun can call, can like make or break a whole entire company. Like there's some guys like they may have a misrun and it's like well we just lost this multi million dollar account because we had a misrun or well I'm getting fired because I just had a freaking misrun and stuff like that. So just eliminating that human error does give peace of mind, but I mean there's still mess ups here and there. Sometimes the technology fails or you might have a glitch in the system. It's like well you know I can't perforate these guns because my software is you know acting all janky and stuff.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, all that stuff is crucial. So, I mean, this is like, this is such cool information. I'm so stoked. It makes me really want to come down and visit. Um, So let me ask you this. One of the things that I see you talking about, like, since I followed you is that like, people don't really understand what's up in the Permian. Like there's a lot of talk about it. People act like they know, but no one... Well, there are more talkers than there are doers or knowers is the vibe I get uh, from how you, how you look at it. So why don't you tell me what the misperceptions are that you see about the Permian and about ONG in general?
1: Man, I take a lot of things a little bit too personal, especially when it comes to <laughs> the reason why I'm like that is because I was given the opportunity to have something that I've never had growing up you know, I didn't, we didn't grow up super rich and all that stuff. So I've always had to work for everything I had in my life. So here I am, I stumbled upon an industry to where I've been able to give my family, you know, everything that they've had in life without, you know, it's like, Hey, can we do this for them? Yeah. You know, it's, but it's all through hard labor. I've, you know, I've sacrificed a lot of my life just to make sure that my, especially my kids have everything they have. And I'll see a lot of these guys, especially dudes that don't even live in texas you know they're talking crap about you know the shell rock which is you know the whole the shell revolution is the whole fracking thing like that and they're saying that permian is exhausted that production is down which that's true you know u.s production is down i mean it's obvious we're seeing it and we have been fracking a lot here i mean i understand like the rock isn't as good as what it was you have you know tier one tier two tier three rock a lot of stuff is it really is drilled up and that's just the reality to things but when I see people that are just constantly dogging the Permian, that's when I get, you know, pretty upset and everything. Cause like I said, it's one thing to talk about the Permian and live here, but it's another thing to just, you know, to talk about it and you have no clue, you have no connection to what's really going on over here. Like you, you're just some, some, some finance dude that, you know, trades freaking stocks all day and this is what you think you know. so that's That's where I come and, like, that's where I really start to talk about it, you know, and, you know, the Permian haters and all that, obviously, from some of my posts and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I'd be frustrated, too. You know, like, there, that's like, it's, it's, because it's more than just this abstract thing. It's your real-ass life. Yes. You know, and you have pride in it, and you have results in it, and your family's benefited from it, and you have friends in it. You've got a whole community around it. It's like community, commerce, family and work all this stuff is bound up together in that and not only that it produces results like it's real shit it's like I'm a keyboard jockey you know what I mean like uh, I like what I do it's like it's all I wanted to do when I was a little kid is be a writer and I'm glad I got to be one you know but like I get that that is not the same thing as what the people who turn wrenches and whatever that make our society run those are like not equal jobs to me
1: yeah because I I mean I see it a lot, dude. Like I've seen a lot of people come up because of the Permian and everything. You know, uh, Colin McLayland, Fraxlap, he's one of them, man. Like, you know, we, we went to high school together. We worked together. And I mean, he's doing pretty good now with digital wildcatters. And that's thankfully because of the Permian.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Me too. Like I'm blessed. I um, I And by no means do I live in any type of poverty. I'm not hurting or anything like that. And I have everything to give thanks to the Permian, man. And like, I, I love this place with all my heart.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. So let me ask you, like, this is something that I've wondered about because I, I lived in New Mexico for a while, you know, um, love New Mexico. And one of the things that I was curious about, having been on sort of like both sides of the border um, where the Permian is, is is there like, what are the major differences there? Like, I'm totally, obviously ignorant. Like, I don't know a lot. So I mean, this might be a dumb question, but like, are there major differences not just in like, um, uh, quality, but like down to how things are kind of like done, or even the culture of the industry on the New Mexico side compared to the Texas side.
1: So the the permit actually does go into New Mexico, and um, I've I mean I spent many years away from that place. The up until recently, the last time I was actually there was in 2018, doing a lot of work in Southeast over in the Hobbs area. Mm-hmm. But I, I started with the new company not too long ago. The previous company I was at, I was there for uh, five years, and where I'm at right now a lot of our works over there and i've noticed that there's a huge shift of all the activity there's still a lot of activity in the you know in the midland odessa pages monahan's area there's still a lot but there i was honestly shocked like when i first started going back out here uh, several or a few months ago to uh new Mexico, area, you know jow again hobbs uh eddie county leah county or leah county however you say it, that area there is a buttload of rigs over there like i'm it's just rig, 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 rig everywhere. And the the differences I've seen is, um, they, uh, they, it seems like they're a lot more stricter over there when it comes to, uh, how they want to things operated, especially, um, uh, with, um, I'm trying to think of the right words, uh, maybe the EPA stuff and all that, uh, as far mm-hmm. as being more of like a ESG friendly kind of thing with, um, with the oil field services and all that. Uh, formations seem to be a hell of a lot tighter. Laterals seem to be longer. Like pressures are way higher than the Permian. Like when I was working or in, in the Milan Odessa area of the Permian, when I was working over here in the Milan Odessa area, I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing low pressures for like, like Sprayberry, like a thousand, two thousand pounds, stuff like that. Versus where I'm over here, we're seeing pressures like exceed, like opening pressure might be like 5,000 pounds, which is like, holy crap, dude. Like that's, that's freaking crazy. It rocks
0: yeah, so let me ask. Like, I just, does that just mean it's easier to get out because the pressure's higher, and so it's got that like, it's uh, it, like if you open it up, it shoots up. I don't know. Like, I I have no idea.
1: So help me out. That's good to have more bottom hole pressure to be able to push okay. all the ounce out. But when it comes to fracking and all that, it's it, it's, it's going to be tough because you have you're fighting pressure with pressure, so you're just kind of just push I it. got
0: you because you got to get like the propent and shit down there or whatever to get it out so you really got to fight if the pressure's high forcing you up okay yeah oh yeah okay cool well that's helpful yeah I mean I imagine like uh I lived in Santa Fe where the state government is and uh boy is it different in how it thinks about energy than Texas yeah I, you know? I
1: think what kind of caught me off guard too is because I know that like I know I know New, New Mexico's a blue state but I was really surprised by how much oil and gas activity is over there in the, the like the area that I'm talking about. So I was like, man, oh, was yeah. like, being a blue state and for, you know, naturally, Demo- you know, Democrats there, they're trying to push the whole environmental green energy stuff down everyone's throats. So I was like, man, was just, I just figured there would be way less drilling activity over there.
0: No, there's tons, man. I mean, it's also, I, this is sort of typical, right? So like I live in Illinois now, so it's like a lot of the major urban centers here where they have the most people like vote blue. And then you have people that live downstate in like rural areas in your coal plants or like wherever and it's purple or red and they have like totally, they have a totally different outlook on things than the people that live near the major cities. And in traveling around New Mexico, that was like sort of some of my experience. Um, I also think like this is very true for nuclear. Part of it uh, is also that anything that's big, like the energy industry or whatever, because of their experience with like uh the manhattan project and stuff they're really testy about like they want the government to show up and like getting people's business because they don't trust whatever's happening you know there's just like a lot of mistrust there so for better or for worse like that's that's sort of like where they're i think they're coming from um let me ask you this man so like you've been in this for a while you've seen both sides of it like what do you see changing in the industry is there anything coming down the pike is there anything you want to see happen in the industry that isn't happening just give me a little flavor of the future here
1: man it's it's hard to really say dude i just kind of been taking things day by day it's the way things have been going especially ever since the whole environment biden administration came in like prices are up they're high and naturally when you think prices are high especially like whenever, like this past summer, I believe it was shot up to like 120, 125 around, uh, around there. You would naturally think like, okay, we got triple digit oil prices. We got 80s, 90s and stuff like that for WTI and for Brent. You would think that people would just be going balls to wall, freaking punch of the earth, drilling rigs everywhere. But that's not the case. Like uh, right now, there's a we have a steady decline in drilling rigs and all that. And I've even heard of some companies laying off already on, the, on uh, my side of things or even getting uh, you know just completely bought out closing the doors like that it's uh, that's where I'm talking about like it's it's hard to say like what's mm-hmm. going to be happening in the next several months what I'm hoping for is that you know we do see a boom and all that because you know people are trying to say like especially whenever prices went up to like the, the 100s that this is a boom but this certainly doesn't you know feel like a boom at all like not compared to what I was it's like a, a boom to me is like from twenty eleven to like two thousand and fourteen, like that was a freaking boom. Like I was mm-hmm. never So I'm hardly still I have been blessed, I'll tell you that. Um the only time I've actually really, really not worked was during the COVID crash. And that was that was a hard several months. Then I don't know where it just started taking off. So like it's I guess it just where I'm gonna have to wait and see what's gonna be happening in the next several months, dude. So
0: So yeah. what I'm what I'm hearing for you is that it seems to be like there's sort of like a confusing mix of signals going on. On the one hand, you're seeing high prices. On the other hand, is the industry kind of like a little gun shy because of how aggressive the Biden administration is being with uh, oil and gas? And so people are like, I don't know if I want to park my money in this industry or what's going on there. Tease that out a little for me from your
1: perspective. I think people are gun shy. I think some people are, especially the EMPs are smart, are starting to get smarter. They don't want to. So what caused the 2015 crash was the oversaturation of the market. That's that, you know, thankfully, or that, that was uh, given thanks to the horizontal boom, which are able to produce, you know, a hell of a lot more barrels compared to vertical wells. So we just had an oversaturated market. And, of course, we were fighting with OPEC during that time and everything, which OPEC does. Man, they're able to uh, manipulate prices big time with how they're doing their production cuts or if they're going to add more production in, into the market and everything. So with that, I think, especially with the last crash, which naturally the last crash was the worst one ever, you know, on recorded history, a lot of people go- were able to that they sur- they got out and they have uh, adjusted to life with that, with not being in- into the oil field. And so now you have a lot of people, was like, yeah, places are hiring and everything. But I think so many people are just tired of the roller coaster ride that they're just like, no, nah, you know, I'm good with that too. So I know I, I read a report too, not too long ago, to where like it was like the lowest enrollment of petroleum engineers. I don't know in what area. Exactly, but I was like, Man, that's freaking crazy, dude. So I think No, that's in
0: Texas. That's true. That is absolutely true. So I've talked to people in the industry about that because so I talked to you a little bit before we started recording about how I like I read a lot about the history of the electricity system. And as soon as I saw that petroleum engineers article, which is either late last year or early this year, I was like, dude, that is not good because when the utility industry stopped getting top tier engineers coming into their programs, they started to suffer and they were freaking out about it. And it created like long-term problems for them like well, it, it, that to me freaks me out to be
1: honest i i, I get nervous about that too because like even though we have this advancement and it's it's kind of dumbed down how we do operations especially like on you know the wireline side with and everything there's there's a huge lack of talent that's you know willing to sign up and all that you know i, I, I my last place i was at I told my boss i was like you know let's get these green hats that are these young kids and everything I was like, they'll be down to work when I was totally wrong. Like there are some of these kids that are like in their very early 20s are some of the most worst freaking workers. And there are some good ones, man, but hard to come across too. And then what even makes things even harder is, I don't know if this is a national rule or or nationwide rule, but it's definitely, it was implemented last year in Texas around like February, April. They've made it so much freaking harder to get your CDL now. Like when I So I got my CDL in 2006 when I was 18. I think I paid like 60 bucks, everything said and done.
0: That's even a commercial it, driver's license, right?
1: Yeah, I was like, to be able to operate, to be able to operate most mach, like machinery in, or to even transport it in the oil field, you need a, some form of CDA. Either it'd be a Class B or a Class A. I have my Class B. So now they have these rules. Also, can take all these classes, and then just before you can even go and like start taking the tennis to be able to get your permit, and then when if you're able to do that, you have to have so many hours on all this stuff. Now and you get your permits. And they actually do the driving test. Like I've heard some of my buddies tell me the driving test. It seems like now you have to be like almost to the point of like an amateur mechanic. Like you got to name all these parts and all that. And I'm just like, dude, I got my test in Midland, Texas. I hopped into in an automatic vehicle. We took off. We drove for 30 minutes. It's like here's your CDL. It's nowhere near even. Like, like I said, I pay like 60 bucks. And I've heard people pay anywhere from like four to $7,000 just to get their CDL. Oh
0: God, dude, that's crazy. Yeah, no wonder why you can't get uh, enough people doing that type of work. That's a huge barrier to entry.
1: Oh, yeah. Which I understand too. Like, it's because I I mean, I don't know how long it's been since you've been in Midland, but these roads are freaking chaotic, dude. Like,
0: oh, dude, they're wild. I was, I was, so I was there around COVID. Yeah. Like 2020, 2021.
1: Cousin, he's a flowback hand and he's gotten to a wreck on Saturday. Thank, think, thank God he's okay. He's, he's, he's uh, banged up pretty good. Um, but he got hit by a damn 18 wheeler, dude, in New Mexico. It, dude, it's-
0: yeah. dude, it's crazy. I was actually listening to um, some like podcast series about the Permian. And one of the first dudes they interview is a guy who like does like off road cleanup, you know, where like after a wreck, he goes and like takes the scrap and all of that. And he was talking about like what that was like. And I was like, bro, this sounds gnarly
1: it's it's rough dude like you have to be a freaking defensive driver like to be able to get on these roads it doesn't even have to be the like the the highways or anything where you're going to have you know all your sand haulers and everyone moving equipment like just even in the city it's like somewhere has some everyone's in a hurry and i see people drive as like, like everyone's just in a hurry to die so
0: yeah dude yeah that's intense so um dude this has been so eye-opening for like, what's going on in the Permian. I want to ask you like, just real quick, like what's, uh, so people who can't see, uh, he's wearing a Kenny Lay's roll call hat, uh, it, so there's a Kenny Lay account on Twitter. That's a parody account. I, I think there's are basically like, uh, a Twitter parody account for like every major head honcho at Enron. I know even Lou Pie has one on Twitter now. Um so tell me what's with the hat man what's going on with the whole uh, that whole side of things you tell me about how you got into it somewhat recently like talk to me about that
1: Okay so I've had my Twitter since like 2014 2016 I, I want to say 16 and the whole reason I made it was I'm a huge boxing MMA fan and so that's how I Hell keep yeah. up that's how I keep up with all all that stuff and and uh you know before covid hit I used to go watch concerts all the damn times so I kept up with a lot of bands I like and so, um, this was like 2019, right before COVID hit, um, I, I ran, I found Colin's account. I was like, oh shoot, you know, it's Colin, you know, we have known this dude for fucking forever, whatever. So I started following him and I noticed, uh, a little bit of trend of his stuff. He, he talked about, you know, oil and gas here and there. I saw that he started his thing up with, uh, Jacob Corley, the digital wildcatters, uh, platform and some like, I didn't ever, po- I never posted any, any type of content regarding the, the oil and gas stuff or, or wireline. I was just keeping up with MMA and boxing and stuff. But then, you know, randomly, I would just put a video here and Colin would uh, retweet it. And I noticed they'd get a sh- buttload of engagements. I was like, man, you know, I got, th- I found it really odd. I was like, it's like, people really like oil and gas, I guess. So one day I posted a video explaining this uh, tool that we run with our trucks at the previous company I worked at and it freaking blew up. It took off, dude. I had all these people DMing me and all this stuff. And so I was like, oh, this is awesome. So I just started putting more videos out, explaining tools. This mm-hmm. is why we do this. This is why we do that. This is what this is for. Stuff like that. And I just started racking up followers left and right. And a lot of people started, like a lot of notable accounts, like Kenny Lay. He's mm-hmm. huge Started following me. The other one, Lou Pie, started following me. And there used to be a Skilling who just recently uh, deleted his account. So these are some of the first guys that started this thing called uh, EFT, which stands for Energy Finance Twitter. And what it is, it, it talked, you know, they started this like around the, um, I think like pre pre COVID crash around there. It's just like some little accounts that were talking about these these shit codes, like these companies that were just like that they were they were short they were shorting all these stocks for these companies and they're fucking making out. You know, they were they were making fucking badass money. Dude, they predicted all this stuff and it fucking happened. Like BRV was one of them. He's the notable account. Uh BSB was one. I can't think of any others off the top of my head right now. So all these guys started following me and or they I guess no one had really start was really doing this, like explaining tools, showing field operations, like, you know, ever you know, all these people like where a lot of them were finance bros where like they they fund oil and gas, but you know, they'd never seen like actual field operations like this mm-hmm. is a frack, this is a wireline this is a perforating gun so that that was the biggest thing that caught me by surprise is like man people really really like to see this stuff like to me it's just like it's what i see every damn day and um the whole energy finance thing or the eft it's you know it's everybody like from i guess your finance bros or your landmen and all that and i just i just i went with it man and the the hat was by this guy this guy named uh, another notable account, Landman Life, he's just started making all this merch and everything. And I don't know, I, I made this bet, dude, I have to show you. Um, so I made a, I don't remember what the, it was, I put out there, I remember now, like if this tweet gets like thousand likes, which during that time was like an unfathomable amount of number for me. I'll get EFT tattooed on me. So I got e- I I surpassed that. I got EFT tattooed on my ankle, And then I got the Landman Life's logo, which is a tire. So, and then I, <laughs> there i don't know if you've ever noticed like every friday kenny lay would do this thing called uh, roll call
0: the roll call yeah
1: so i have eft roll call and landman life from a bent a twitter bent tattooed on my leg and <laughs> i just i mean I, it's cool man i went with it um kind of started doing my own thing I, um so I, i love eft but also at the same time like i i feel like i don't really fit in like with that side so much because i'm not you know i'm not a finance pro. like in reality dude i'm think i'm pretty dumb especially when it comes in finance and all that stuff like that like, i don't understand none of it dude yeah I want, just don't like i'm to, be, to me i'm just a dumb field hand so i just started doing ofs which is old field services man and that's where i feel like these are my people this is where i fit in the best and everything for like sure. that but i have mad love for, for eft because i mean i mean they're all i've met some of them i've met a lot of them and they're fucking cool as hell man
0: that's awesome no i love that i love getting a peek into that whole world a lot of that stuff has opened my eyes to, um, O and G and I've learned a lot and I really learned a lot by you coming on. I'm sure my listeners did too. So I want to thank you because we're coming to the close of our hour. Um, before I let you go, uh, I see some records, I think behind you. So, uh, what do you just tell me, what are you listening to right now? What are you vibing with?
1: Dude? Um, so my Genre of choice is uh, post-punk. My two, my favorite band in the whole entire world, which it's my uh, I guess my Twitter banner, is Joy Division. I'm a huge...
0: Dude, fan. hell yeah. Loaded it.
1: Iron Maiden shit behind you, dude.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Iron Maiden, man, too. My buddy that does Wireline with me, um, he got me the Iron Maiden. I remember like growing up, I used to always see the Iron Maiden, this, Iron Maiden, and that. And I'm, it was like one Christmas, we were chilling, drinking together, and we were outside his backyard. He put it on. I was like, who is this? He's like, It's Iron Maiden. I was like, holy... Fuck, dude, these dudes are fucking, I, I, got, I got real into them, but like, yeah, I'm a huge, uh, I'm a huge post-punk fan. Uh, I listen to a lot of bands from the late 70s, early 80s, uh, mainly from the UK, uh, uh, Eastern, Europe. a lot of obscure bands and nobody knows who the hell they are. I remember uh, I'd be in high school in this like 2005, 2006 when I was a senior, I had Toy Division tattooed on my arm. And people are like, who the, who the hell is that, man? And, like, the only people that knew who I was talking about were, like, guys, like, in their, like, 40s and all that and stuff. Oh, dude, for real. Listen some pretty good music for your Great. age. I mean, I love them,
0: man. <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. So, everybody, if you haven't listened to Joy Division, go check out Closer, I would recommend. That's a good place to start. Uh, and, uh, or Unknown Pleasures. That's, I mean, the logo for that is so famous now. But, yeah, I think that those are the two. So... With that, everybody, remember, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.